0: Welcome to the season two finale of From the Bridge. This is Rick Jones. We've had a lot of fun with a lot of great guest anglers this season, and today's show is no different. Today's special holiday theme is thankfulness. My guest angler is the longtime sports announcer, Tom Brennerman, who lost his job as broadcaster for the Cincinnati Reds this summer and was suspended by Fox Sports when he used a homophobic term in the press box that was caught over the airways. He will discuss this and his new goal of talking to corporate groups and student athletes about the power of words as a way to bring about social justice and sensitivity to all peoples. We'll take the final trip up on the old soapbox and a holiday memory trip on the road with Rick. It's getting cold out here on the water in December, so let's head to shelter from the bridge. When I was a kid, one of my heroes was the longtime sports editor and columnist for my hometown newspaper, The Atlanta Journal, Furman Bisher. Furman Bisher was the great sports writer of the South and I look forward to reading his columns each and every day. An annual tradition was his Thanksgiving column where he told us what he was thankful for that year. He wrote his first column for the AJC in 1950, but it wasn't until 1955 that he began the annual Thanksgiving thankful column. Furman Bisher died in 2012 at age 93 in honor of him and his annual thanksgiving column here's my list of things i'm thankful for in 2020 i'm thankful for cool clear fall days in the south carolina low country for the ways the sweetgrass blooms turn from purple to white for sweetgrass baskets and the black artisans that still make them by hand for the breeze on my dock overlooking the Bohicket River, and for the wonderful blue crabs I catch off that dock. I'm thankful for Gumbo, both mine and anybody else's. I'm thankful for the many mentors who have made a difference in my life. Too many to name, but I thank each of you and think of you regularly. I'm thankful for Coca-Cola Zero Sugar that tastes like real Coke. I love Coke Zero with a bowl of just pop popcorn. I don't like a beer with my popcorn. I I like a Coke with my popcorn. I'm thankful for the Augusta National and the Masters and for both game day being there and for Dustin Johnson winning like he did. I'm thankful for his graciousness in winning and the way he conducted himself. I'm thankful for the piece ESPN did on Vern Lundquist and his contributions to both college sports and golf. He mentioned the famous kick six in the Auburn-Alabama game and the great Tiger Woods shot at 16 as some of his most memorable moments. But I want to remind everybody, he called what I thought was the greatest college basketball game I ever saw when Duke beat Kentucky at the Spectrum in Philadelphia on Christian Laettner's last second shot. Several years ago, I had the privilege of flying on an airplane sitting next to Vern Lundquist, and we had a wonderful conversation between Atlanta and New York, Uh, just quite a gentleman and quite a legend. I'm thankful it looks like we're going to have some March Madness this year, even though it might be in a bubble in Indianapolis without any fans. I'm thankful for all of the college coaches I know and those I knew well who've passed on. I simply love coaches. I'm thankful for Jim Haney and Reggie Metton, who both recently retired from the NABC and for all of their contributions to college sports and for their friendship. I'm thankful for John Swofford, who is retiring as commissioner of my favorite conference, the Atlantic Coast Conference. He did an amazing job for the ACC and had simply an amazing career. I'm thankful for the great job Anna Slive Harwood is doing for her dad's late charity, the Mike Slive Foundation. I'm thankful for Abe Madcor at the Sports Business Journal for his leadership and insights during this pandemic that really helped all of us through it. And he is simply one of the kindest people I know. And kindness really counts these days. I'm thankful for corn dogs, and I can't wait to get back to the State Fair of Texas to eat the best ones on the planet. I'm thankful that most Americans really do care about each other and want us all to do the right things. We just respectfully disagree about what those best things are. I'm thankful for my clients and look forward to helping each of them through better days. I'm thankful for and love my teammates at Fishbait and Engagement, the best people I know who make me better each and every day. I'm thankful for this podcast, my amazing producer, Lindsey Collins, and for all the listeners out there. And I'm thankful for my family, for my kids, Jen and Rob, and Ryan and Celia, and for my grandboys Ollie and Henry. I have not seen them since last Christmas and cannot wait to get back across the pond soon. Finally, I'm forever grateful to my wife, Charlotte, who actually puts up with this old pirate. (laughs) It's been a great ride, and we're just getting started. My guest angler is the longtime sports broadcaster, Tom Brenneman. Tom grew up in a broadcaster's family, as his dad, Marty Brenneman, was the longtime play-by-play broadcaster for the Cincinnati Reds from 1974 to 2019. Tom graduated from Ohio University and immediately joined the Reds broadcast team, calling TV games with Hall of Famer Johnny Bench. He later worked with the great Harry Carey broadcasting Chicago Cubs games and then became the first broadcaster for the Arizona Diamondbacks from 1998 to 2006. In 2006, he had a chance to return home to Cincinnati and joined his dad in broadcasting Reds baseball. He joined Fox Sports in 1994 broadcasting NFL and MLB games and was the voice of the BCS when Fox had that contract from 2006 to 2009. Let's welcome Tom to the bridge. Hey, Tom, welcome to From the Bridge. Thank you, Rick. It's always good to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am. Let me ask you this. You grew up in a broadcaster's family. Your daddy was a famous broadcaster. Did you know you always wanted to be a sports broadcaster?
1: No, in, in fact, uh, I thought I wanted to be a lot of other things, but I just wasn't uh, smart enough to be a lot of other things. I, I had thought about being a lawyer, and i thought about being a psychiatrist, and you know those kinds of things. And just uh, you know, I, I remember I used to work every summer uh, and live with my grandparents down in Nags Head, North Carolina, in the Outer Banks. And uh, I had started working down there when I was maybe like fourteen, and it was great. I got to spend the whole summer with my grandparents. It became very, very close, an incredible relationship, and. But anyway, so it was the end of my uh, sophomore year at Ohio University, and I had been up for three or four days like a lot of students, studying for exams, and you know, uh, taking diet pills to stay up all night and drinking coffee and all that kind of stuff. And, and I jumped in the car, and I remember I was driving by myself from Athens, Ohio, down to, down to North Carolina, and I was in West Virginia. And I think I'd gotten probably two or three hours into the trip and hadn't even turned on the radio yet. I was that kind of out of it. And I remember turning on the turning on the, the, the radio. And I think for a lot of people now, it's hard to believe you're, you're old enough to remember this. But, you know, th- there was no ESPN back in those days where you found out all the sports highlights the night before. You had to do all that, you know, basically listen to the radio, whatever it might be. And I had not paid attention to sports for four or five days. And I turned on and I remember the, the, the broadcaster, Don Cricky. He used to do these NBC radio sports updates for stations all over the country. Did Notre,
0: did, did Notre Dame football at one time. Yeah, well, time he did a mutually, lot of things. Yeah. He was yeah. a
1: very talented guy, a uh, very talented guy for a long time. And uh, and he, he just said, well, last night and whatever it was, some baseball race, uh, one team jumped over another, and it, it kind of hit me. I'm like, you know, that's the first time in, in I don't know how long, maybe my whole life, where I, I didn't know something was really going on sort of big in sports. And I thought, well, you know, if that's the case, why not try to do something that, that's involved in sports? And so when I got to North Carolina, I called my dad. We started to talk a little bit about it, and I came back the next year and started working on a radio station, and, and everything kind of went from there.
0: That's interesting. Did your dad say,
1: Tom, what took you so long? Uh. No, he, you know, I, no, he, you know, him and my mom, you know, they, I mean, believe me, uh, they were just trying to get me through high school, Rick. Uh, it was, uh, you know, back in those days, it was a lot of fun to be a teenager, and, um, and so, no, they just wanted me to, to be happy and do whatever I wanted to do and, and be the best that I could at it.
0: Well, I'm old enough to remember what I call the great days of AM radio and yeah. the, the great Lewis Grizzard, who was a columnist for the Atlanta constitution. He wrote a column one time called driving at night through middle Georgia and, and all he can find again, he's in middle Georgia and all he can find, are a.m. 50,000 watt stations listening to hockey games <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. He ta- and, and, and he talks about going through these small towns and then he ices the puck and then he does i mean he's, he's listening to the to the thing so that that was a great era i grew up in atlanta and this is crazy, but I became a Chicago White Sox fan. You got to be kidding. Because in the early night late 1950s, early 1960s, I had a transistor radio and I could listen to WLS in Chicago at night wow. in Atlanta wow. and see at that time we didn't have a baseball team. We had a minor no. le- a minor league team the Crackers. But I would listen and I became, you know, Smokey Burgess and Louis Aparicio. I mean, sure. I was a huge White Sox fan because I could listen to their games on the radio. And I could also listen to the great K. Wood Lefford on kentucky games because that came out of cincinnati i think
1: out of one of the fifty thousand watt stations well yeah wlw is the one even now you can get you know in 48 states after like 10 o'clock at night yeah it's insane yeah
0: yeah and so i grew up doing that so it's interesting well i want to talk a little bit more about about your career but i want to ask you this when you finally got back to cincinnati and you now work with your dad yeah what was that like
1: Well, you know, it was, it was interesting, you know, because your perception of what it's going to be like, and I only bring this up because the guy who was running the Arizona Diamondbacks where I was working and and he had allowed me to get out of a contract and lead to go back to Cincinnati. And I never thought I would leave Arizona. I loved living there. I met my wife there. Our kids were born there, baptized there. I I, I love it. I still love it there. Um, but they had had an ownership change, and and, th- and things were just a little different than they were from the very beginning. Nonetheless, you know. Now you it, worked for Jeff Jerry Moore, Colangelo first, yeah. Then, right? okay, he was, I, got yep. I mean, is the best boss I've ever had, uh, without a doubt. I mean, the best. Um, love the guy, still do. Um, so, you know, there was an ownership change, and the, and the new guys were great. They they brought in a former agent, uh, one of the most powerful agents in the in, in the country in baseball, a guy named Jeff Morad who I liked very, very much, still do like him very much. And, and and he and I could have very frank conversations about things. And I remember he said to me, you know, look, I'm going to let you go. Uh, but he told me, I'm not so sure that it's a good idea that you do go. And he said, it's really, really tough. He said, I've had players that have gone back to their hometown. He said, you throw in the fact that you're going to go back and your dad is the guy, you know, and I'm like, I've never cared about being the guy, but he's just like, he's a guy. And, and I found out later what he meant by that, but but to answer your question directly, when I got here, I think my perceptions of what it would be like were very different than reality. My dad was involved at the end of a, of a marriage who was very unhappy, so he was not a happy guy. Uh, he was tough to be around, uh, and he'd be the first to admit that. Um, he was tough to be around for about the first three, four years that, that uh, my family, uh, when we moved back to Cincinnati, and, and then when, you know, subsequently that 20 Five year marriage came to an end and, and, and you never like to see things like that or hear things like that. But it was it was it was the right thing, I think, for everybody. And then, you know, all of a sudden he he met a woman uh, shortly thereafter and, 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 and all of a sudden just did a total about face as far as being pleasant to be around, happy to be around, fun to be around. And it was everything then that you hoped it would be when you made the move in the first place. We just had so much fun over the next number of years and, and still do now.
0: Well, you also worked with some other legendary people. You had a chance to yep. call with Johnny Bench. You had a chance to work with Harry Carey. Talk, talk about those guys.
1: Well, you know, Johnny, It it's just so funny, you know, Rick, uh, how the Lord works. You know, you, you know, when I was a kid um, and my dad gets a job in Cincinnati in 1974, and the Reds used to have spring training back in those days in Tampa. Um, and they played at Al Lopez field. And and I'll never forget, we were living in Virginia beach, Virginia, when my dad got the job in Cincinnati. And, um, and so we went down to Florida, uh, my mom and sister and me to go down there with my dad's first time we had done anything with the reds and we get down there and he brings me in a clubhouse. It was a very different time. You could do those kinds of things. Then now it's, you know, it's Gestapo CIA stuff. Uh, they, they, um, the first four guys I meet are Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, and Tony Perez. Each of them hand me a, a bat, hand me a glove. You know, I bring that up because now you fast forward. You asked about Johnny Bench. You know, you fast forward roughly about uh, fourteen years, and I get a chance to start announcing some of the Reds' games. Thirteen years, and Pete Rose is the manager, and Johnny Bench is my partner. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. And Johnny was, you know, he was, he was such a star. I mean, you know, I know there are guys today that are stars, but back in, back in the, the 70s, the 80s, you know, Johnny Bench was a star. I mean, you know, he, he was a great player. He was great off the field. He was a, a smart guy in business. He was on the boards of different businesses, spokesperson of banks. You know, he just, he was on his game. Uh, from the day he set foot out of Oklahoma into Cincinnati, and and he he taught me a lot about baseball and a lot about broadcasting. You know, Harry Carey um, was without a doubt uh, one of the top two or three greatest influences in my life. Period. He was he, he was so full of life and fun. Loved his job, but realized that there's got to be fun in that job. And, and, and that's really one of the very sad parts of broadcasting today. It's become so vanilla. It's become don't say anything. It's going to make anybody mad, especially at the local level. Um, and Harry, you know, he wasn't out to, to, to hammer anybody. But if they made a mistake, he'd let them have it and move on. But he was so much fun to be around, just every day, the way he lived his life and the way he looked at life and and going out at night and hitting the town and the whole nine yards and and then he and I had a chance to do many of those nights, which I am paying for now at fifty seven but he was he was just awesome. He took me under his wing, probably the first month that I was there, and uh never looked back, just had a ball, it was so sad when he passed. Well, it'll I still, sad.
0: yeah, no, he, I, I told, uh, L- Lindsay Collins, my producer today, we were talking about, um, her grandmother who's in a nursing home and, you know, through COVID hadn't been out anywhere. And I, I said, you know, you Lindsay, if you don't drink and you don't smoke and you don't chase women, you might not live forever, but it'll seem <laughs> like it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you never, you, 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 you know, with Harry, he was going to go out on the town. I mean, you were, yeah. you, it was going to be that kind of thing. You know, I, I I feel the same way a little bit about coaches, too, right now. The era of the big personality coach, you know, they're all so corporate now. They have to be so careful about what they say. They can't be themselves. I grew up in the era of, you know, like Bones McKinney was the basketball coach at Wake Forest. He was also a Baptist minister. I mean, he was just a, a, you know, larger-than-life guy. At one time, Leftry Giselle, you sure. know, it was just, just, they were characters. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, I, I do think we've lost some of that. Um, again, we've become such a corporate culture. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, th-
1: you look, you look Rick at you know, some of the baseball guys, for example, you're right about the coaches. I mean, I think there's only probably one or two left where you're just like, I think Bob Huggins is still one of those throwback guys where, you know, he's this big, strong, intimidating guy and, and, and really is not afraid to say what's on his mind. And, and and he's not worried about what the media or what the fans think about him. I, I admire the heck out of the guy. Whether people like him or not, that, that's their decision. But, you know, I look at baseball and it was in the news last week where, where Tommy Lasorda was hospitalized. And I try to explain to, to, to people about what Tommy Lasorda was like every day. And I mean every day one of the great showmen of all time. I remember when I was doing the Cubs games back in 1990, I mean, I couldn't wait to play the Dodgers just to walk into Tommy Lasorda's office because it was holding court in front of anybody and everybody who walked in there. The stories, the language, it, it, was, it was incredible theater. Lou Pinella, same thing. You know, now now these guys, you know, and I don't want to throw a a blanket over all because that's not a fair thing to do with anything in life. But but you're right. It's become not only corporate. It's become vanilla. It's become boring. And I think that you're starting to see um, that have direct impact on every level, the corporate boring kind of thing. That's starting to affect, I think, baseball in particular. Maybe some of the more more so than some of the other sports.
0: Well, I I think authenticity is is one of the most critical things. I I tell people a lot of time, unless you're Amazon or Walmart, uh, you don't want to be a commodity. You know, you want to you want to live at the intersection of the authentic and the exceptional. And when Mm. you you know when you it's like light beer. When you when you water the beer down to a point that it doesn't taste like beer anymore, then then it's a bad thing. And I think we're seeing a little bit of this. I, I was reminding of a, one of the great basketball legends was a guy named Abe Lemons. Abe Lemons sure. was the longtime coach at Texas, and uh, yep. he tells a great story. He was at, uh, I want to say maybe Oklahoma City College starting his career, and he said he had 65 training rules. And he gave the training rules (laughs) to his kids. 65 rules. Well, one day his best player went out and stole an airplane. And and he he called him in and said, he calls him in and says, son, I'm going to have to kick you off the team. He goes, coach, I got the 65 rules. Doesn't say anything about (laughs) stealing airplanes. He goes, you're right. You start tonight. (laughs) uh, But right now, I think there are probably a gazillion rules Uh, that are out there that are just kind of crazy. This will probably be hard for you, but, but do you have a favorite game or a memorable game that you were part of?
1: Well, you know, the the, the it, it was more the circumstances of what happened around it than it was necessarily the game itself, although you bring it up with people in Chicago and they'll tell you it's one of the most heartbreaking games that they've ever seen was the, was the Game 6 of the 2003 National League Championship Series when the Cubs were playing the Florida Marlins. And that was the game a lot of people remember as the Bartman game yep. where the ball goes down the left field line, Moise Salou goes over to try to jump in the stands and catch a ball. It was a critical eighth inning. The Cubs were five outs away from going to the World Series for the first time since 1945. Um, A fan goes to catch the ball. And, you know, for those that remember the game, what then took place starting that moment in time, for the next hour and a half of my life, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like it in my life. I mean, it's a very long, drawn-out story, but it was just Off the air, we had a camera that I could see in the booth of stuff that was going on with the guy down there with Bartman, which was just so shameful. I mean, it was just awful. They're throwing stuff at this poor guy. He's the biggest Cub fan in the world. Nobody wants to win the World Series or the Cubs to win the World Series more than this guy did. You get people who are drinking. Uh, They think that Alou could have caught the ball. I still swear up one side and down the other, Alou was not going to catch the ball. Um, And Alou's reaction to it, I think, is what really sparked everything. You know, he's out there competing. I get it. But, uh, you know, he he basically just pointed the guy out and then off it went from there. And so, you know, they're throwing things at him. I can see off the air that the the, the cops are going to take him out. I keep saying to our producer and director, I'm like, we got to quit replaying this fellas. I I said, you know, enough is enough. I said, this poor guy, uh, you know, I said, not only think about tonight and right now, but what about tomorrow or the next day? Um, And so, you know, he... They get him out of there, and 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 it was awful. I mean, they, they're throwing not only just cups of beer all over the guys; they're escorting them out. But people are, are finding objects that actually could hurt you that they're throwing at this guys. The cops are taking them out of there. And then again, and then the you know the Marlins score eight runs in the inning, uh, most of it on an error. Um, you know, somebody said to me they should have been throwing beer at the shortstop who let the ball go between his legs that led to eight runs in the inning, but. That's what happens. And then after the game, you know, I'm walking out of the stadium, and I had done the Cubs games many years prior and come walking out, and there's this big, huge uh, cement wall uh, that's, that, 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 was, it, that was put up the, that year. It had never been there the years that I was working, which is the entrance uh, of the Cubs executive offices. And as we come walking out, we open the door because I knew the shortcut, and nobody else would go out of that door that was even in the whole stadium. Um, and there's Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan standing there by himself behind this wall. And I had only met him once or twice. And, you know, I, he knew I was, but I didn't know him. And, and, and I, and I look at him, I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, you've been out there yet. And this was right on the corner of Clark and Addison. This door is right under the marquee of the, you know, yep, Field and, yep. all that. And, um, and he said, there's 200,000 zombies out there. I'm not going out there because they had allowed no car traffic, only foot traffic. They literally had hundreds of thousands of people in the street anticipating going to the World Series. So my partners are Al Leiter, who is about 6'5", Steve Lyons, who's about 6'3", and we're meeting our producer, who's about 6'7". And I said, look, I said, why don't you just get in among these three guys? They'll kind of surround you, and we'll just walk down the street. and We'll get to a car and get you wherever you want to go. He's like, nope. He said, I don't care if I have to sleep here. I'm not going out there. I'm like, okay. So we leave Michael Jordan standing there. And long story short, get back to the hotel. I wanted to go have a beer. I had a couple friend of mine that uh, that they were in town and never been to Wrigley Field before. I got them tickets to the game. I said, come on, let's go take a walk. So we walked down or this place, this place, have a beer. Well, we walk in this one place where Major League Baseball is having a party. And in there is Josh Beckett. Now, Josh Beckett's 21 years old. He's a big star pitcher for the Marlins. He had shut the Cubs out to keep the series alive in game five. And he's sitting at the bar having a beer. And I had met him a number of times through Lenny Harris, a former player for the Reds, really good guy who, who was then playing for the Marlins. And I walked over and I said, Josh, I said, look, this is none of my business. I said, but, uh, you know, I said, I, I've announced World Series and, and, and teams that had Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling and some of the great pitchers of all time. I said, I don't think they'd be in the bar. The night before game seven, your manager, Jack McKeon, told us if they needed you in relief tomorrow that, that you were pitching. He said, yeah. Uh, he, said, uh, he said, you want me to tell you what's going to happen? I said, yeah, what's going to happen? He said, "Both starting pitchers are going to struggle. He says, I'm going to come in in about the fourth inning, and I'm going to pitch the final five innings. I'm going to stick it up there blank. He said, and we're going to win this series, and we're going to go on and win the World Series. We're going to beat the Yankees. I said, really? He said, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Well, sure as hell, that's exactly what happened. He came in the fourth inning, the next game, pitched the next four innings, gave up one hit, the Marlins win, and then he becomes the MVP of the World Series.
0: That was some beer that he was having. I mean, whatever he had, give me five. Exactly, exactly. Well, Bartman, you know, that got replayed over and over and over. And you think about any other person – just instinctively, a ball hit, foul ball, yeah. Yeah. to you, you're going to go get the ball. I mean, it just, everybody, I mean, I'm sorry it happened to him, but it would have happened to anybody. Okay, so he made a mistake. Um, Coach I don't Mort- even think it was a mistake. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, a like you yeah. said,
1: it's instinctive. I yeah. mean, there were five other people, seven other people around him that tried to catch the ball too. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember waking up the next morning, Game seven was going to be that night. And I turned on the television, which I rarely ever do in a hotel room. I turned it on. And the first thing I see, the channel that comes up, is, a, is a, like an overhead from an airplane a helicopter of just some place. And you're thinking, well, maybe they had some explosion or something, robbery or something happened there. It was a helicopter circling the place where Steve Bartman worked. Oh. On every channel in Chicago the next day. The Chicago Sun-Times made the decision. The Chicago Tribune had said they weren't going to do it. The Chicago Sun-Times put the guy's name in the paper the next day. And that's how we all came to know Steve Bartman. We'd have never known the guy.
0: And that's how you, that's how you destroy lives.
1: I mean, yeah, well, and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and I tell you, I don't know if there's one guy I would love to meet. It would be Steve Bartman. Because, Rick, this guy... He was offered $2 million by Harry Carey's restaurant just to come down there and blow up, be a part of blowing up a ball that was recovered, that ball, that night. Bartman never got that ball. It was thrown back onto the field. And Harry Carey's had spent over a million. Sorry, my dogs are going crazy (laughs) here. It spent over a million dollars to to get that ball, and they offered Bartman – a million or 2 million to um, come in and be a part of blowing it up. And sure enough, uh, he wouldn't do it. He has never done an interview that had anything to do with uh, that night and that situation, not one time. And I mean, I would just love to meet the guy and talk to him just for 10 minutes about what it's been like for him. I mean, he can't go anywhere in Chicago if indeed he's still there.
0: Yeah. I, it, it, again, there was an old Paul Newman, Sally Field movie called Absence of Malice, where yeah. uh, <clears throat> where she writes this damaging article about this construction executive who she's never met, and then he walks in her offices and says, I'm so-and-so. She spills her <laughs> coffee. I mean, it, it, the lack of accountability, and I always love retractions. I mean, I love that they'll put it on the front page and indict someone and then when the retraction comes, it's on page nineteen. That's right. In small print, because then, yep. you know, you know, nobody cares. I mean, it's like, no, no, yep. I don't care that I destroyed your life or I made something up or I, I did that. But it's really, really tragic. Well, last June, you you you, I think would call it a mistake, an That's honest smart. mistake. Um, yeah. Let's let's talk about it a little bit.
1: Sure. You know, I I, I mean, I used a word that um, that that Rick, I, I you know. Look, I, I, now you used I a word
0: said. when and not in on the air. you
1: use a no. word in a in a
0: time that you think the microphone is not on yeah yes, but,
1: but but it's a word that even if I'm sitting in my house, it's a word that I gotta know better to say and it's a it's a it's a slur, and the word is fag is the word that I used and 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 I can and I say that now because uh, ever since then, um I have. Tried to right this wrong, and I've come to learn what that word means. And I've spoken with so many leaders in the in the LGBTQ community here in Cincinnati ever since then. I mean, it's been ninety days roughly since I said what I said, and um, of those ninety days, I probably spent forty five to fifty of them uh, in some form or fashion um, with uh, with the gay community. Uh, whether it be just in personal conversations, whether it be in meetings, whether it be on P flag meetings, which is an organization that's designed to, to, to help parents or uh, primarily parents who, whose kids uh, come out of the closet and tell them they're gay. And, 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 and how you then deal with that as a mom or a dad when you get that kind of news uh, or from a loved one. Um, and I've spoken with them about using this word. And, you know, we'll talk later, I'm sure, about, you know, now trying to go out and to share that experience and what it was like and how it changed my family's life and how it changed my life professionally and personally by using that word and what it means and what its root is. And, you know, the more and more I learned, a lot of people, I, I just, I, you know, a lot of people, Rick will say, to you, oh, man, how in the world don't you know what that word means? And, 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 and I don't mean what it means referring to someone who's a homosexual. I'm, I mean, the, like the root of the word, where it comes from, that kind of thing. And, I, and I've come to find out, I'll look at people all the time and say, really, do you know what the root of the word is? Do you really know what it is before you start pointing a finger at somebody? And you come to find out that you start sharing what that really does mean like I did and what that word means to people who are gay and, you know, a fag is it is a piece of kindling wood, one single piece. You put them together and they were referred to as faggots. And this is going all the way back to France and going all the way back to the 1700s, 1600s. And they would use that wood to burn gay people at the stake. That's where that comes from. And I mean, that, that, that's pretty shocking stuff. As opposed to the word that that most of us who are in our generation grew up hearing all the time at school. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I mean, I, I screwed up. I hurt a lot of people. I screwed up badly. And, um, you know, I, I I lost my job with the Reds, um, which I've been there the last 15 years. Um. I lost, I was suspended. I've not lost it permanently and good Lord willing, I won't, but there's nothing I can do about it. They just keep doing the stuff that I'm doing and learning and growing with Fox. Um, and you know, we'll see how that all plays out. Um, but you know, I, it's time to now start sharing uh, that experience, uh, with others. And, um, you know, thanks to you and thanks to some others, Jim host, coming up with the idea and, 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 and helping me to understand how I could go about sharing that with young people and, and how, you know, look, I mean, I'm making a million dollars a year. I mean, I got commercial deals with Kroger and Mercedes Benz and getting free cars and, you know, all this stuff that all of us place so much value on. Right. And all of a sudden, And most importantly, Rick, I had a reputation, which I worked very hard.
0: Yeah, no, 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 no. I I, I get that. Tom, think about this. In your professional career, how many words
1: did you use in broadcasting ball games? Well, it's funny you bring that up because in in this journey of now going to share my experience and what's happened to me, and that's the only reason I bring up about the money and about the cars and about the commercials is because – that's how you can, can let people know really, you know, how much you screwed up and how much you messed up. And so, you know, in the presentation I did with the West Virginia university uh, men's basketball team um, recently, you know, you you just do the math and my wife's looking at me Polly, like I'm crazy. Like you're not really going to put up all those numbers. And I, I really did put up all those numbers. If you just took roughly, and this isn't even close to being accurate, because it's a lot more than this. But if you basically took 33 years of Major League Broadcasting, multiplied by 162 games per year, multiplied by three hours per game, multiplied by 60 minutes per hour, multiplied by 150 words per minute, which an announcer normally speaks, you do that with 27 years of the NFL, multiplied by 17 games, multiplied by three hours per game, multiplied by 60 minutes per game, multiplied by 150 words per minute. Those two sports alone would be 188 million words. And one word changes everything. One three-letter word after 33 years. One three-letter word ended for how long? We'll see. But it ended overnight, my broadcasting career. I went from making money to zero income. Zero. I haven't been at zero income, Rick, since I was busing tables and washing dishes at a restaurant when I was 13. But it's on me. I'm the one who did it. I'm the one who said it. Uh, I've learned so much since then. I still believe this is part of a bigger plan. And I really believe this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I really do.
0: Well, you've got a unique platform now. When you met with the uh, uh, basketball team at, at West Virginia, what were some of the key points you wanted to make to them?
1: Well, I just I, I think you look at whether it's the word I used uh, and inclusion. You know, a lot of the studies that have been done recently uh, among NCAA student athletes, and you start talking to them about race, you start talking to them about. Uh, any number of topics, the one that draws the most highly charged uh, responses have to do with inclusion and about sexual orientation and gender identity. And, and so, you know, the easiest thing in the world for a lot of these these athletes and students and young people, people in general, is, is to sort of, you know, they, they'll keep using those kind of words or they they. They'll say hurtful things to people that they don't even know in some cases that they're doing, not the word that I'm using, but other things that they might say or do. And then the biggest danger that that I try to tell them is the, the social media aspect of all this and how you hit that send button. And I believe that, you know, there are a lot of four letter words in this world that are not good words. I'm not so sure for this younger generation that the word send is not the most dangerous word. And that could apply to, 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 to us adults as well. But for the kids, and I gave examples about, you know, recently there were, you know, four football players. I'm not even going to name a school, but there are four football players decided they saw this guy come out of convenience store. He's got a 12-pack of beer. And they decided it's a great idea that we're going to go steal the 12-pack of beer. Well, not only did they go steal the 12-pack of beer, one guy decides that, that, that they're, they're going to videotape it. And just started to of knock him around a little bit, scare him, push him, shove him down to the ground while they're taking his 12-pack of beer. Well, then one of the guys decides, oh, wouldn't that be funny to put that up on the Internet? Well, each of those guys, four of them, are getting to the tune of $70,000 a year worth of scholarships. You get five years to play four. So for each kid, that's three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a 12 pack of beer scholarship gone. You know, others examples of of where a bunch of girls are drinking and one of their friends passes out. Well, they think it's sort funny. And all of us have done this to start painting their friend while they're passed out with magic markers and stuff like that. Problem is, is they think it's funny to start putting swastikas on their friend. Well, guess what? Booted out of college. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, some of the stuff that goes on, I'm just trying to share with them that, fellas, look, you know, companies now, when you're applying for a job, 78% of them, the first thing they do when they get an applicant that they're seriously considering hiring is look at their social media pages. And this stuff will follow you around. And it could cost you a job. More importantly, it can cost you your reputation. And that's a hard one to build up, but it's a lot harder to build it back up. You know,
0: no question about that. My wife Charlotte has a great uh,
1: concept about words.
0: She will say, you know, honey, think about the most beautiful Piece of wood you can find and then drive nails in it yep you can pull the nails back out of the wood but the hole's still there mm-hmm. and 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 that's the part you can't get back you know yep. and, you know and I'm all human beings we're all um you know we've all said things we we didn't mean um, but like you said today on social media it's forever um, wow. and, and, and yeah, you do, we were at the Atlantic coast conference, um, tournament a few years ago in Washington, DC. We were playing. It was then the Verizon center and, and we're staying at the hotel where uh, most of all the teams were staying at the Marriott and we come back from dinner and there are four Georgia tech basketball players sitting in the hall and my wife goes, guys, what are you doing? He goes, well, we're locked out of our room. <laughs> and she goes, you know, we can go downstairs and get you another <laughs> key. <laughs> so she, excre- like, you know, and she oh, she boy. comes back and says, I love these guys, but there's a lot of stupid in that room. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's part of it. Um, what,
1: what, do, what do you think you learned the most from this? I learned I, I think Rick to, to value, value people more, you know, I mean, it, you know, you talk about what's on the internet, you know, if you go Google my name, uh, and, and someone shared this with me just last week because I've tried to do everything I can not to look at some of the stuff anymore on the internet. Um, and I think someone told me the first 400 and something responses about Tom Brenneman are homophobe, 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 homophobe. And that's not you. I'm not a homophobe. No, I, don't. I, never, have been. Right. I never have been. I never have been. I've never I've never had anything against anyone on their race. My stepfather was an African-American man, um, had beautiful friends since the time I was eight years old that were African-American. I saw the Jackson 5 at the Hampton Roads Coliseum with my mom and my sister and some friends of ours who were African-American sitting in the fourth row when Michael Jackson was about 10. Um, I have, I've never for one second held anything against anyone who is gay in any form or fashion. They want to be married and society decides them it's fine to be, Hey, look, they can be married. I, 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 it doesn't matter one way or another to me, God bless them. They deserve the same rights as everybody else, whether it's applying for a job, keeping a job, all those things in society. But I used a word that all of a sudden put me in a corner where where that's I've earned it. I earned it by using that word, period. I earned it. So. You know, in 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 all of these different uh, areas where I've tried to learn and grow, uh, I will say without a doubt that I have learned and I have grown and the grace, the the, the grace, the uh, forgiveness. The support that I've received from the gay community and, you know, people who who have kids and I've met a couple of of women who have gay children. And when I've said that to them, they've said to me, why would you be surprised by that? I said, because I heard I heard a lot of those people with the word I use. And they both said to me, don't you think that they've been ostracized in a different way and for a different reason? than the way you have been here the last three months. So why wouldn't they be more open to giving grace and forgiveness because they're marginalized in society every day. Right? So, you know, I think valuing people and, and trying to understand, and it's what I share with a basketball team, you know, look, when it comes to race or when it comes to sexual orientation, we're not all going to agree and we don't have to agree. One of two of the strangest bedfellows, so to speak, uh, in Cincinnati that I've come to meet is a very powerful uh, minister here in Cincinnati at a church, huge church, Christian church. But he's known all over the country, travels all over the world. Great guy, young guy, energetic guy. And he has become very good friends with one of the leading spokesperson for the LGBTQ community, gay man in Cincinnati named Chris Seelbach. And it all started when the minister did this, you know, sort of fire and brimstone service one day about homosexuality. And the Chris Seelbach, who's a city councilman, the first gay city councilman ever elected in Cincinnati, uh, he heard the sermon and it really upset him. And they tell the story that Chris will say, I know Brian is never going to change his view on homosexuality. He just doesn't have to be such a jerk. And I found that to be one of the most interesting things that I've heard from anybody during this whole journey.
0: Yeah. I think kindness matters. I think redemption matters. I think forgiveness matters. Uh, I think, Accountability and owning what we all do matters. But I don't think any of us are perfect. And I don't think any of us are ever going to be perfect. But I do believe that what you're doing now, talking to corporations, talking to young people, can, can help them see differently. And, and the ability to do that, and I'm also a big believer that you never know about what I call the quilt, and the quilt are all the stitches that you have out there, and you'll touch somebody's life that you don't ever know. Mm-hmm. But you will have said something that, that A, they will either respond to, or even more importantly, basketball players go home and tell their parents, I learned this, I saw this. Uh, that's going to be very valuable. I, Tom, I hope you're back in broadcasting somewhere next year. I'm very grateful for what you're doing right now. I appreciated your candor today. And I thank you very much for being with us today from the bridge.
1: Well, let me just, let me just say, and I, and I don't say this, um, you know, I don't say this Rick because you, you're having me on your show, but I just want people to know that, you know, when you make the kind of mistake that I make, um, the only phone calls you're getting are phone calls besides your friends and your family, are phone calls that are telling you they don't want you anymore to do this, whether it was the Reds, whether it was Fox, whether it was uh, commercial uh, endorsements you were doing for people. Those were the phone calls you're getting. And two of the phone calls I received uh, were from Jim Host and shortly thereafter from Rick Jones. And people who didn't know me in your case at all uh, in Jim Host's case, who knew me barely at all, um, but who felt like, you know what, let's see if we can't do something to 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 help this person. And you said kindness matters, and I will tell you that 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 every day that I get up and every night when I go to bed and all points in between, um, for Jim Host and for Rick Jones to do what you guys have done for Tom Brenneman, and more importantly, his family. Um, I'll never be able to repay you, and I cannot thank you enough. And I just want people to know out there that that's the kind of person, if they don't know already, that that's the kind of person that you are. So thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome, and you're very kind. I I do think things happen for a reason in life. I don't always know the reasons, but I think they do. And I'm absolutely certain so much good is going to come out of this for you and for others and, and I think at some point in your life, you'll look back and go, I hated that it happened, but I'm glad that it happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and we can go from that.
1: Happy Amen. holidays, my friend. Take Same care. You, Merry Christmas right. and have a great Thanksgiving. And we'll visit soon. Bro. Thanks, Thanks buddy. Time. We'll see All you. Right, Bye-bye.
0: Let's take our final trip up on the old soapbox. Here's the question for the day. Whatever happened to forgiveness? (laughs) I'm a Christian, and for Christians, Christmas celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ. The key to Christianity is the concept of forgiveness. I know that God forgives me of all my many faults, character flaws, and limitations. We need to learn from that and forgive others. Jesus once very eloquently said, He who is without sin shall cast the first stone. The truth is we're all sinners and we all make mistakes. My New Year's resolution is to bear no grudges and forgive those who make a mistake. I hope you'll join me. The world desperately needs more forgiveness both from here on the soapbox or wherever you might find yourself. It's fitting that our final trip on the road with Rick is to a special restaurant that is actually open 365 days each year for 24 hours, including Christmas Day. That's right. I'm talking about the famous Waffle House. I have a strong personal relationship with the Waffle House. Two guys in my home church, First Baptist Church of Avondale Estates, Joe Rogers and Tom Fortner, with the help from banker Clifton Davis, started the famous restaurant chain in the early 1950s. Joe Rogers was a cook at the Toddle House chain of restaurants when he bought a home in Avondale Estates from, yes, you guessed it, real estate agent Tom Fortner. In 1955, they formed a partnership to open the first Waffle House restaurant in Avondale Estates. Waffle House restaurant number one is now a museum with a more modern restaurant close by down the street. My dad loved the Waffle House. My dad was a government investigator. And he had a government per diem. He got paid a per diem. And so he figured out he could eat all three meals a day at the Waffle House and send money home to mom. And so I think uh, his dining at the Waffle House allowed my mom to buy groceries for several years. My best friend growing up, Tim Haynes, his daddy was a contractor, and Tim became a contractor like his dad. And what did he do? He built Waffle Houses for a living. He worked for Waffle House. And so there was a period of about 25 years, and anytime you saw a new Waffle House, Tim Haines was the guy building that. All right, here's my Waffle House holiday story. I was a paper boy in my youth and delivered what was then the afternoon paper, the Atlanta Journal. The morning paper was called the Atlanta Constitution. They're now one paper, but in that era, they were two separate newspapers owned by the same company. The few times during that era that they actually combined papers was every Sunday morning and on select holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. On Christmas Eve 1966, when I was 12 years old, I was staying up waiting for the newspapers to be delivered around 2 a.m. so that I could then you know, deliver them to the houses in the wee hours before I would head home and get some sleep before Christmas morning. Now, I would normally deliver my afternoon papers on my bicycles, or I actually would carry them and run and try to set records for how fast. The Saturday paper was always really small. You could almost carry the entire route uh, under your arms and try to set a record in that. But most of the time, I would ride my bike. But my mom or dad would drive me on Sunday mornings because the paper was very large. And they would also drive me on holidays Um, so I'm in my bedroom around midnight when my dad pokes his head in and says, Hey, let's go eat at the Waffle House while we wait for the papers. I still remember that night. My dad was my very best friend and it was great to be with him. He traveled a lot. We didn't get much time together. While we were eating, a fully-dressed Santa Claus came in to eat, and we all got a kick out of that. Like I told you, Santa eats at the Waffle House. I still love the Waffle House, and I've eaten there several times when traveling to visit family, even on Christmas Day. Now, here's my favorite Waffle House order. I like chicken and eggs, grilled chicken breast with fried eggs over medium, with hash brown scattered and smothered. That means you got... Grilled onions, you press them down flat, and you make them really, really crispy. I'll have a little side of wheat toast and some coffee. And just for kicks, I'll have a side order of pecan waffles too. Man, that's good eating on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or any other day or night on the road with rig. That's a wrap on season two of From the Bridge. Thanks to my very special guest, Tom Brenneman, and all my guests this season, and to you, my listeners. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Let's hope 2021 is a whole lot better than 2020. We hope to see you back here in June when we get back out on the water from the bridge.